0: Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Ren Yi hong the author of Passionate Work, Endurance After the Good Life. In Passionate Work, Ren Yi hong theorizes the notion of being passionate about your work as an affective project that encourages people to endure economically trying situations like unemployment, job change, repetitive and menial labor, and freelancing. Not simply a subject of aspiration, passion has been deployed as a means to build resilience and mend disappointment with our experiences of work. Tracking the rise of passion in 19th century management to trends like gamification, co-working, and unemployment insurance, Hong demonstrates how passion can emerge in instances that would not typically be understood as passionate. Gamification numbs crippling boredom by keeping call center workers in an unthinking, suspensive state Pursuing even the most banal tasks in hope of career advancement, co-working spaces marketed towards freelancers combat loneliness and disconnection at the precise moment when middle-class sureties are profoundly threatened. Ultimately, Hong argues, the ideal of passionate work sustains a condition of cruel optimism in which passion is offered as the solution for the injustices of contemporary capitalism. Ren Yi Hong is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and New Media at the National University of Singapore. He is interested in labor and its relationships with affect, technology, and capitalism. His works can be found in Social Texts, New Media and Society, and the European Journal of Cultural Studies, among others. Ren Yi Hong, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, honored to be here. Thank you, Tom.
0: Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk today. I know we're dealing with uh, quite a big uh, time gap with me being in the eastern time zone of the U.S. and you there in Singapore, Uh, but also I want to thank you for your work on this really important topic. The problem that you're grappling with in this book has become endemic. There are a number of titles out in the last few years that grapple with our emotional investments in work. I'd like to ask, to start, what brought you to this project? That is, what got you interested in the issue of
1: passionate work? Right. So, I mean, on the, what initially brought me to this topic was just an observation, right, of how passion was so sort of something that people spoke about all the time, right? When they were starting to look for work, when they're in work, when they feel disappointed by their work, like it just comes up all the time, right? But I was also um, looking at this project, doing this project sometime after the Great Recession, so, it was quite obvious that at a period of time there was this contradiction, right? Um, although there was this, you know, sort of the do what you love kind of discourse going on, at the same moment, right, there was also a deep skepticism about passion, right? I think people were just jaded and overwhelmed by the job hunting process. Um, and this is when I was starting to look into it and, you know, sort of thinking about what passion. Really does, right? Um, and I guess you know a lot of the le- literature, right, speaks of passion in uh, sort of a more narrow way. I, I would presume, right? Um, so passion was uh, is what I called uh, a trade-off thesis, right? Um, that basically um, people can be exploited uh, for their passion right, um, by giving by being given lower wages and things like that. And I wanted to expand the ways we thought about passion, right, as ideological uh, kind of formation. Well, so let's start there. And
0: um, in, in kind of defining some of these key terms, what exactly is it that we mean by passionate work?
1: Right. So I define it a little bit differently from how most people define it. Um, so I guess for most people, passion is a feeling, right? It's something that you experience, right? Um, and you engage in or you want passionate work because you want a particular feeling or a particular encounter with work. For me, I see passionate work as a, a real ideological formation. In other words, um, you don't need to feel passion to, be, to encounter the ideological nature of passionate work, right? So for instance, um, you can your work may be adjusted, right, to fight against say boredom without you experiencing passion itself, right? So more specifically, then what passion is is, uh, and I define it against other other emotions. But passion is a feeling that is characterized by its energeticity, right? Um, it is a very energetic emotion right because it gets you to do something and this is actually interesting um i think a way of defining a a particular emotional affective state because what it means is that you don't actually need to be happy to be passionate passionate right so a passionate person can actually be overwhelmed can actually be fatigued right Uh, and still be passionate and um also quite interestingly um a, pa- a person with passion is um passion is most defined by failure in other words you know when a person continues acting even when they are overwhelmed that is oftentimes the clearest example the clearest evidence that a person is uh what we would not uh, commonly describe as passionate so
0: it might seem odd to ask this question today, as the idea of doing what you love or 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 being passionate about your work is almost taken as axiomatic in our culture. But how did the idea of passionate work emerge as a necessary component of of
1: living a good life? Right, and I think we can trace back to especially the nineteen fifties. I think one of the um the the biggest sort of speakers about this was Abraham Maslow, right, when he talked about. Self actualization being the sort of apex of human fulfillment, right? What all humans really want. Um, That was, I think, critical in sort of giving the rationale that passion is something, finding excitement in what you do, being interested in what you do is actually key towards, um, you know, being fulfilled as a human being, right? It's a very humanist logic to this. Um, of course, we can take that and trace it back to, I think, you know, the romantic work um, ethic. You know, I think other scholars have done that too. But I think the 1950s is really this moment where a lot of different theorists, you know, um, culture, uh, uh, Douglas McGregor, you know, and other um, different managerial theorists are coming up to sort of use passion as a way of defining what the new emotional regime in capitalism was going to be, right? And by the 1970s, um, this was really naturalized, right? And it was naturalized not just by managers, but by journalists and, you know, um, uh, you know, public intellectuals. Um, and they, the basic argument was that passion was something, it's something we all seek. It's something inherent in our human DNA that we want. And that uh, only in finding it and doing what you love, can you, Feel fulfilled and happy in your life's adventures.
0: It, it also functions as, as sort of a corrective, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, right? That at one, at, at another level, it offers sort of a um, a way out of the kind of Taylorist nightmare that that was sort of encapsulated by factory work, and it's um, equivalent in the in the sort of hierarchy of the modern corporation, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so passion was coming against um uh uh, i mean i would i would basically like characterize the period before um to be one of happiness you know um so yes there's taylorism right but there's also um, elton mayo and human relations right and i think the general feeling um at that moment right was that i mean the general push at the time was about industrial harmony and about efficiency right so um in these two threads right um what passion sort of uh is when passion is defined against it it's really described as uh, a f- much more about self-fulfillment about self-actualization than the kind of the like you mentioned the kind of data inequality of the sort of taylorist uh mm-hmm. requirement but also against the sort of um the stulifying quality of sometimes what people call happiness, right? So the the argument at the time was happiness was like contentment. It just got you to work, but it didn't get you excited about work or excited about life. So you sort of created this sort of hollow smiles um, in people. And that was, I think, the key argument in the 1950s.
0: So I'd like to ask you to read from the book. Um, if you could turn to the last full paragraph on page 25, I think that'll help our listeners get a sense of,
1: of really the problem that you're trying to tackle here. The cost of labor under capitalism, Marx suggests, will always have the tendency to be forced towards zero. Although the zero of labor cost is always beyond reach, capital can always approximate more and more nearly to it. Thus, in the cultural ascendance of passionate work, it is not uncommon that corporations repudiate the importance of wages, even as they affirm the deeply fulfilling life that work can offer. Problematizing feelings may not only be more cost-efficient than increasing wages, it may also be more effective in stimulating productivity, getting workers to put more of their energies into their working hours to accommodate unpaid and overtime work, and to cut threats to the smooth functioning of businesses, leaning into the normal happy fold of corporate life alliance with capitalism's relentless search for profits.
0: Yeah, so I think that's just a really nice summary of, of some of what you're getting at here. I wonder if you'd like to elaborate a little.
1: Yeah, I mean, we think about passion and what passion does, right? It's it's a lot of times about getting people to work more work harder while at the same time pushing down the wages of um of ordinary workers right and i think um and this is you know this has started from a long time ago and i think we really see it now with um you know influences with um people who do in wellness industries in creative um industries you get you see that a lot and i think um I think that is one of the key problems of passion, right? And I think why people are so concerned about it and why the issues about it is so salient at this historical moment.
0: So in the first case study in your book, you call attention to uh, employment's theoretical other in the condition of unemployment. Tell us a little bit about your fascinating analysis of the Marienthal studies.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was actually that study is interesting because I I took a while to actually work on um, that particular chapter. And the the Marintel study, um, Marintel again, is this social scientific text um, that has become very influential in thinking about unemployment. And the key argument about that text is just how people... Um, How employment, you know, how after extended periods of unemployment, that people will become apathetic, right? So, the sort of the emotional uh, regulation function of employment was basically the key argument of the uh, Marenthal text, right? And um, that text still continues to be cited today, right? As the sort of main argument about why employment uh, is so important for people's mental health. What was really interesting, though, about that study when I looked at it carefully was how they defined apathy, right? I mean, when I think of apathy, um, I typically think of people who are depressed, right, are fairly unhappy. But the descriptions of apathy in uh, the marine tile text was actually not that, right? So these were people, and this was a community, right, which was unemployed. Um, but they defined people who were apathetic as essentially people who were contented, who, were, who had moments of sporadic joy. Um, but I think that the key problem they described was that they had no inclination to look for work. They had no inclination to find ways to become more productive, right? And um, the researchers later on go on to talk about the decline, especially in the community's men, um, towards becoming more and more like animals. Essentially, they become instinctual, they react to sounds, they go out, they react to sounds, and then they would just stop there until a new sounds prompt them, and then they sort of turn and follow that new sound. So there was something curious about the way Meryntel was understanding apathy that drew me um, to, and because apathy is defined as opposite of passion, right, it drew me to think about the influence of passion in understanding our condition of joblessness, and and that leads you
0: to um, an analysis of the really ubiquitous advice manual, "What Color Is Your Parachute?" And so how does this seemingly benign and, and really very popular bit of self-help literature contribute to our psychic investment and passionate work?
1: Right. I mean. Um... What Colors a Parachute is a very, I think, important text to think about when you think about passion, right? Because it is also one of the most popular um, you know, job hunting kind of texts, right? And it's also one of the first few texts that really sort of discuss um, this great passion, right? Finding your, um, you know, so they have this flower exercise, right? Where you're supposed to find the thing that you are most Uh, you're born to do, you're most interested to do, right? So basically finding your bliss, finding your passion through that flower exercise. And the exercise is really long. It takes a long time to do that exercise. So it's some serious work, right? Um, And and so that was the first, um, you know, um, Richard Boyles, right? The writer of, 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 um, you know, What Colors is a Parachute? Was the first person who really sort of made a clear case about why passion was crucial to job hunting, at the start, it was really more about, you know, that you'll just be happy. You'll be fulfilled, you know, to find um, uh, to find what you love to do. Now, as time goes on, and um, in moments of, of unemployment especially, he would start, however, talking about it differently, right? And he would say that finding what you love to do is really, really important because that would give you the energy and the gumption to continue, you know, searching for that job, Right? even when things are tough, even when you are not getting any responses. So I think uh, looking at Boyle's and the way he uh, you know conceptualizes the centrality of passion to the job hunting experience, right? Um, made me realize the sort of different uses of passion, right? And especially the way passion is employed to create more resilient workers, right? To create workers who are more able to handle the problems and abuses of the job market, right, which has only gotten worse every single year since then, and continues
0: to to, to only yes, get and worse.
1: Continues. I've been I've been researching for this for a while, and you know it's startling how the reports about job hunting have just gotten worse and worse over time. Yeah. Um, so
0: one of the more insidious. Um, ideas that you analyze goes by the name of gamification. Um, what does this term mean, and, and how do you see it functioning as a form of what you call soft control?
1: So gamification is basically a, um, it's, a, it's, a it's a software, I mean, it's, it's a term by um, used by, you know, software engineers, but also uh, marketers and um, uh, managers, right? And the main idea is, how they could make something that is, you know, not necessarily a game feel game-like, right? Um, there are sort of uh, competing definitions, right, in the community about what can be defined as gamification. For instance, can you gamify something that is not software at all, right? But um, essentially, the idea again is to translate something that is, um, you know, typically usually boring or uninteresting or something you would not consider exciting to be something that has game-like qualities that will make it more engaging. So a common use of this, for instance, is in education. The idea is that you want to be able to motivate students to do things that they would otherwise um, not do, right? Now, of course, this is clearly a method of self-control. You know, um, this is a way of getting people to do things that um, they May not want to do right, or they may not be interested to do. Um, gamification in work, especially, um, is used uh, particularly in amongst workers who oftentimes have fairly boring jobs, right? Um, and so, again, the goal here is to get them to, uh, you know, to, to, to alleviate, I guess, relieve the tedium of work, but then also then to produce more, right, to contribute to corporate profits.
0: Well, so what's an example from the world of work? of this of this idea of gamification?
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the more interesting um, things that we're looking at is the gamification of call center work, right? Um, you can imagine right, call center work is largely an electronic kind of work, right? Um, that is relatively easy to gamify, right? Um, and if you look at gamification systems, um, you know, it, it has it's pretty elaborate systems, right? So for instance, when you pick up a call, um, you will get maybe say 10 points, right? Um, if you finish a call in five minutes you get a bonus 20 points so on and then the points contribute to badges um you get the leader leader bots, right um and basically it gives you in you know, a sort of competition right and it gives you some goals right how fast to finish your call and things like that that um keeps the work of um you know call center work more interesting right uh and so i mean that's one of the i think direct applications i think one of the, what is why i guess i was so um interested in, in gamification was the rhetoric around it, right? So um when it was discussed as kind of gamification for call center work, and it's largely discussed in humanitarian terms, in other words, it's about relieving the work of usually um the people lowest in the value chain. Right? And and I guess you know if you look at the history around such work, and I think that's one interesting thing is that, you know, this kind of work is not the, it's the kinds of works that basically is not seen as uh, uh, people, these are not people who would be in the sphere of passionate work, right? These are not the people you associate um, with what passionate work is like. And so I guess part of my interest is really thinking about how does passionate work come to affect these groups of people who typically will not be considered passion at all. And in fact, it will be the last group of people you would think of when you think of the word passion.
0: Yeah. And, and, but it's interesting that it kind of, I just did a podcast earlier in the, in the year with someone who um, was doing a study on the idea of um, the meritocratic society. And there's something that sort of kind of dovetails nicely with, with this idea of gamification and the idea of a meritocracy. That is the sort of the measurement that goes into um of trying to do better at your job.
1: I mean, definitely. I think gamification works in terms of spurring competition, right? And, and I think it and they and they do it quite um deliberately. I mean, um it is it is very easily I mean the whole process is quantified, right? And um, points and stuff like that. So it's very easy to see merit, at least merit in terms of who is doing something faster and stuff like that. Um, I mean, within gamification communities, I mean, there are nuances, right? So for instance, you may not want to always incentivize people to pick finish their calls too quickly because that would not be good customer service, right? So how you assign points um, on, on what conditions, those are things that, you know, the software experts um, really sort of tinker with Um, But I think the meritocratic thing applies in a different way, too, in a sense that what I think um, these workers are being shown is the possibility of participating in a system that they would otherwise be excluded from. In other words, as a call center worker, you're in a dead end job, right? Um, And again, it's not just call center workers, but a lot of these jobs that are being given by, it's mostly a dead end job, right? And so what gamification does, and they do it not just through the literal points, um, they also do it in a way that, you know, you can collect badges, right? And um, there are systems meant to sort of translate those badges into, into, your, uh, into your CV that you can bring outside and then, um, you know, showcase so-called your diverse skill sets, right? So there are all these ways of translating um, a literal sort of a gamification system into something that is meant to sort of speak about the human capital, right? Again, to highlight the possibility of progression within a uh, a system or ideological system of meritocracy. But again, I mean, this is this is largely a fantasy, right? I mean, um, most of the time, these workers, once you are in a, a call center job, it's hard to leave it, you know?
0: Yeah, it, it, and it's this, this, chapter resonated with me here at the university. we've been our, we're in the College of Arts and Sciences and lately there's this been effort, there's been an effort to make the, make the arts and sciences make the liberal arts quote unquote relevant. And one of the methods that our leadership has decided on to do that is to um, offer students badges. Um, really almost exactly the way that you're describing them for, you know, taking certain courses or or encountering certain ideas and and then they get this thing that they presumably put on their their CV that they have a badge in, you know, critical thinking or
1: something like that. Right. You know, I mean, I I I, I sometimes some wonder how to think about this, you know, um, I mean, I do think that I think for the students, if I were to, I mean, to be more sympathetic to the students, I can really see why they are so concerned about it. Um, I mean, they are faced with, and it goes back to that in the previous chapter about the nature of the job market. The the job market itself is very trying. It is very difficult. And I think that, um, you know, people who are entering the job market are faced with significant stress, right? I think, um, mental health um problems have been really serious right i i'm in the united states definitely but i think around the world too in singapore where i am um you know uh, amongst university age students college age students um mental health is not good right and i think these kinds of pressure um is really about this this kind of precarity and financial insecurity that people experience these days that has huge um kind of influences huge impacts on all parts of their lives and so i can see why people would buy into this because again it is an option right i mean and, and you can package this in a bunch of different ways um the idea is that you want to you want to create a means of capturing more skills capturing more certifications um capturing more abilities but again i mean again it comes down to that that question, right? Um, it, This is the prices of the system. There is something problematic about the system. And I guess fixing it that way would only create more pressure um, rather than actually, I think, alleviate it. Oh,
0: yeah, I, you're 100% correct. I mean, I, there's no question but that, you know, students are, especially students, as you said, the contemporary 18, 22-year-olds that we see, or although, you know, at, at a school like the one where I'm working, we see Uh, We see older students and they're under enormous strain because, as you said, the job market has become uh, has become really vicious and um, and they're looking for any edge that they can get. So I understand completely why they would why they would attach themselves to this. Um, So the 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 last case study in your book is of a very contemporary idea of co-working. Uh, Most people will know this through companies like WeWork Um, for some of our listeners who may not know. What is co-working and how in your analysis
1: does it serve to advance this ideology of passionate work? Right. So co-working is, um, I mean, it's basically a new kind, a new use of real estate space, essentially, that sort of took off recently in a very popular way. Um, The basic idea here is that usually an office space will be converted into a place that you can rent um, and to to work in it right so you pay to to work in a space now, there have been satellite offices uh, of, of particular sorts, you know, um, before co-working. But I think what the modern moment of co-working does is that they sort of really take an effort to make it not just about space, but about culture. So, um, and it, and I think this sort of varies. I think uh, WeWork is one version of it, right? And in the WeWork version, essentially, you have a very curated space um, and people can come in there, they will pay a certain sum of money and they could, um, you know, have nice, have a nice space and they can bring clients in and the idea also is that um, that you'll be able to network so you'll be able to network with people who are uh, like-minded who are also freelancers and then you can collaborate to build your own business and build your brand and things like that. that is the promise of co-working so i came to co-working really out of an interest in infrastructure Um, I was, I mean, I'm interested in infrastructural work, which is, I mean, so I've been looking into the sort of architecture and offices and things like that for um, prior to passionate work, right? And one of the iterations, of course, was um, co-working, right? And it just struck me about how co-working was so much about the endorsement of um, passion in a particular way. So it's about how you could um, bring people, um, you know, who are freelancers, who are lonely, who are probably feeling defeated and, you know, alienated, and they can put them in a space where it's vibrant and full of like-minded people of their own tribe, and that they would just flourish, right? And in in, in Extreme Version, I, I opened this story with um, a sort of Clive Wilkinson sort of um, imagination, right, of, of, of the endless office. And uh, Clive Wilkinson sort of developed the Googleplex, right? But in the endless office it's just this office that is stretched above um, above uh, London, and you can just take a elevator up and you reach it, that kind of thing. And it's just it's just fascinating um, how infrastructure is imagined as a new way where people can sort of come into more into more positive encounters with work
0: your work in this chapter is is largely ethnographic so tell us a little about your your experiences of uh, of, of sort of occupying these spaces
1: yeah I mean it it's really interesting I mean so I I ended up going to a number of co-working spaces um especially in the um in the in the, in the west or the coastal west of America right um and honestly at first I I struggled to make sense of it I mean I could um you know I could speak about say the 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 architecture or the sort of interiors of a space, which will, you know, usually taste well-designed. But I was expecting a lot more vibrancy and people were just working inside, you know, like people were just minding their own business and working inside. Um, And so that got me a bit disoriented for a while, you know, Um, because it was not exactly what I thought I would see. And of course, having spoken to, other people who are, you know, in the, um, who are, you know, co working, right, who are co workers, they just told me that, of course, you know, you're here to work, you know, you won't go, in, go around and speak to everybody, but everybody, you know, you know. And there's some occasions where you do speak to people. But I did come to realize that what was offered here, I mean, the sort of um, the marketed speech is that this gives you sociality, right? And you find your tribe and stuff like that. What most people get out of it is not really that kind of sociality. It's a more, I think it's a more lightweight, more, I guess, um, they're just like acquaintances. Like They literally just want people to work next to them because sometimes that motivates them, that keeps them accountable, right? And that also serves a small degree of feeling like you are not alone as a freelancer. And I think that matters to people.
0: Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Because I'm I'm just fascinated by that idea. I, I I'm thinking back to um, my first sabbatical uh, as a as a, a full time faculty member, and and I was told by all of my senior colleagues that whatever I do, no matter what, I should not set foot on campus. Right, just just stay away from this place, and and so. I, you know, I don't do the kind of work that requires travel, and I didn't have to be any place, so I was mostly at home. And so I would go to a coffee shop, and, and every day I would, you know, pack up my computer, and I would go to this shop, coffee shop, and I would spend eight hours, you know, tapping away at my computer and doing my sabbatical project. And, and it struck me that this was very much the same kind of thing. And, and eventually, you know, that sort of light, you know, accountability or whatever, uh, however you described it. They're really trying. And so I on on subsequent sabbaticals I've just gone into the office because at least there are people here who I like and can talk to.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so I guess what I what I found with um you know, and I speak a lot about that because um, you know, there has been, been, been this big discourse around the loneliness epidemic, all right, Um, in the United States, but also broadly, I think worldwide. Um and, you know, a lot of, I guess part of it is what exactly is loneliness? And I, and I try to dive into that question um, in um, in, in that chapter, right? And for me, I mean, yes, yeah, so loneliness is a feeling, right? It's a feeling of being isolated from people, right? But if you go back to Marx and you go to Ariane, right? Um, what loneliness actually is, is about feeling redundant and sort of, um, outside, um, you know, mechanisms that allow you to produce economic value, right? And so I started thinking of through that that aspect, you know, and, um, and again, you know, freelancing is one of those jobs that while you are, most freelancers sort of do it on their own, you actually need a group of people to help you out along because, you know, there are just too many problems, right? How do you know you're doing a good job? Um, what if you need to collaborate on something? What if you need, how if you need assistance, right? And I think a lot of freelancers just tell me, you know, when they work alone, um, without anyone to look, you know, look out for them to, you know, that they can speak to, it just felt really hard. Like they they just, even if they were doing a good job, they just felt uncertain about their economic value. You know, they felt uncertain about the work they did. They second-guessed themselves a lot more. And so I guess what, and that got me thinking a lot about what co-working is, right? On the one hand, co-working is a promise, right? I mean, it's marketed speech. It's about, you know, coming to a cool place and really building deep friendships with people of your tribe and stuff like that. In reality, what people want is something much less grandiose. I think. They, they, they just want to be in a place that, Keeps them feeling, keeps them away from the anxiety. All right, Uh, from perhaps feeling redundant, right? So that they know where they place, they know what they can do, right? And I think co working is that, and and sort of the infrastructure and the sociality here then sort of intersects, right? Because um, some co workers told me they have been in coffee shops before, right? And but you know they mention a lot of problems at coffee shops, right? You ultimately you know, the coffee shop is not really your space, right? So they have to constantly buy food. They can't leave, <laughs> Oh, you know, they can't leave their bags to yeah. go to the toilet and things like what? that. Yeah, these are small inconveniences. But somehow it ends up being really big for them, right? Because they just feel, again, I think, you know, if you're doing this for a long period of time and you're going to do this for a whole career, right? Um, feeling that you don't have a place, I think, starts to, matter because then you are just always a guest there you know uh and so while this can work for maybe a month or two it just starts to wait wait on them once they do it for longer
0: and this is this is i think this is along the same lines but i just want to tell you this um my spouse recently went back to work in the advertising business um she she started her new job just after the just after the pandemic. And so everything was remote, right? So she set up her, her office at home and, you know, all of the equipment is there. And then at some point, as a lot of companies have done, um, there was this requirement that she go back into the office. The curious thing, though, for me, and, and I thought about this reading your chapter about, about co-working spaces, is that the office now has been set up Along the lines of what you describe as a co-working space, so when she goes into the office, she has to reserve a spot in advance. There's no dedicated place for her and 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 the people who have been you know sort of working remotely find this incredibly off-putting um, that they can't go into the office and know that there's a place for them to be.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: And That's, so it's just, it's yeah. curious to me that the, these freelance practices, the, these responses to freelance practices are now starting to sort of infiltrate into, you know, sort of regular full-time work.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, they learn a lot from each other. And I think, I mean, so on the one hand, and companies have put some pitches in different ways, right? On the one hand, it could build serendipity. you know, it could get you ideas that you could, could get to know more people and so on and so forth, right? But I think on, on, on the other hand it's a lot about it's just about efficiency about about um being more efficient about the use of office space right and actually lowering its costs right because then that's what's the sort of a key driver of co-working spaces uh, continues to be the driver key driver of co-working spaces that were in fact I think um since I've written this book right so a lot of when I wrote this book mostly people who were doing co-working were largely freelancers mm-hmm. Now, um, at least in Singapore, where I'm at, uh, freelance the people in those co-working spaces, a lot of them are companies, right? They could be small companies, but sometimes even large companies will be in these co-working spaces and they do it really to just reduce the sort of cost, the real estate cost, right? Office space cost um, that they used to have. So, I mean, a part of it is about cutting costs to uh, and cutting costs to infrastructure.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean again, my 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 wife um the the company when they moved to this sort of mo, more of a what what we're describing there as a co-working model, they they of course abandoned an entire floor of the building that they were in. So they weren't paying rent on that anymore. And also a, a friend of mine, he works in in London. Um he 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 inhabits one of these uh, co-working spaces. He has got a regular full-time gig, but um he he does everything out of a out of a a co-working space. Mm. Uh, so you conclude the book with some prescriptions for how workers might grapple with some of these problems of passion. Tell us a little bit about your ideas for um, for sort of dealing with uh, some of the the issues that arise up out of
1: your analysis. Honestly, I struggled a lot with uh, <laughs> finding an end to the book. I mean, I've critical about it. That is no problem. But how do we? think about passion for me i understand i mean the way i approached it and i understood immediately that what i did not want is the opposite of it right so that's something i did not want so you know some people would say okay um what are you advocating is to just not be passionate right to be dispassionate and stuff like that to be apathetic and i just don't think that's the way to go um because, and, and, and this happens on several grounds, because first of all, I mean, there are huge problems with, you know, simply being apathetic in the first place. But I think um, the one of the bigger issues is that if you look at the discourses around passion, you will notice that, you know, um, endorsements of passion go along with critiques of it. So you will, you might get a career guide saying, you know, don't be passionate, but find something you like, you know, um, or, you know, just passionate will exploit you. So you got to be smart about it and just be passionate about things that don't exploit you. So basically, they, they sort of put you in this circle, right, essentially. And what I understood was that, um, what I, and I I just drew inspiration, I guess, from the sort of history around the term passion. Right, so passion has this very interesting somersault history. As I mentioned, passion today is one of the most active emotional states, right? In fact, um, the, the, it is a term, it is an affective state defined almost entirely by energy, right? By being active at something, right? Um, but if you look uh, historically, right, um, at, the, at the term, etymologically at the term, right? Um, passion also comes from the word passion, which is about suffering, and suffering in a passive way. And this was, in fact, the ways um, that you know early people, um, people in the 18th century and before, understood emotions, right? Emotions were something that was like a spirit that afflicted you, that you had to fight it, right? And so feeling something was always not coming, some, not, it was not an emotion coming from inside, right? But it was something that came from the outside in. And I guess what was uh, useful about understanding that was just this moment of critical reflection, that, um, that a pursuit allows allows us, right? So my prescription for passion was not to sort of just go against passion, you know, without thinking, but actually to think about where you got that feeling, right? So instead of, you know, when sometimes you be passionate or when you feel that, okay, this is what I'm interested in, you know, just take a moment back and say, and ask yourself, how did I come to get that feeling? For me, I think passion um, that that sort of approach to passion gives us a moment to think about the where we got this thing from and what we can do about it, and whether or not and what's the best way to 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 approach our passions and approach things we like, right? Um, and, and and so this moment of contemplation, I think, is very necessary, uh, and at least is my my way of trying to get a, a sort of give some leeway, right? Um, to this to this sort of very hegemonic demand for passion in our lives. Well,
0: so what's an application of that? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking especially because we're, we're two academics sitting uh, having this conversation. How would that that sort of opening up a space to consider where the passion come from, uh, how would that get operationalized in, in, for instance, work like this?
1: Right. I, academic work is interesting because it is, it's an interesting work, right? Because it's so much about passions, right? Especially for people who work, uh, you know, in departments that you know are so called losing relevance, right? Which I which I disagree. But you know, in the humanities, that is often what is said of us. But um, I do think that 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 moment of contemplation is about the moment where we have to critically ask ourselves, um, what are our obligations? And why are our passions important or unimportant, right? Because I think passions can do a lot of different things and different kinds of, um, I mean, my basic question to passionate work is not what is passionate work per se, but what does passion do? And I think that, you know, when as academics, right, um, our passion sometimes can be very useful because it is a way of unpacking structural injustices and letting people see that there are alternatives to oftentimes a world where people think there are no alternatives and was presented as us as, as, as is, right? And we are here to unpack that and to show that there are different routes. This is how things are made up. And things, these are things. the ways that things can change. But also, I think, um, you know, on a personal level, I think it means being um, responsible to whoever we are teaching. For instance, right? Um for just in terms of for class, for, class, for graduate students, for instance, right? Um, when you have a graduate student, right, and given the an nature of the job market, um we probably not we shouldn't probably just tell them to pursue their passions, right? We have to think and we have to let them realize the reality of that situation. And that passion shouldn't be just a catchphrase to just, you know, go ahead and do what you want to do, but there are consequences to that. And that we have an obligation to help them make the best of the situation that they are in and i think so i think this is one of the ways in which just thinking about our passions and what our passions can do and 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 just being responsible for them right um will help us you know navigate this world in a much better way
0: Uh, that's an excellent answer thank you for it i really appreciate it um before I let you go today, um, I'd like to ask, what's, uh, what's next on your agenda? Uh, I, I hate to put it this way, but um, where are your passions leading you to next?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very much fascinated by labor and work. Um, <laughs> um, but so, so my I'm actually working on the next book now, um, and it's titled Bearable Media. And it's basically a way of looking at digit- different trends of digital labor, telecommuting, remote work, um, you know, NFT labor, platform work, that kind of thing. And my main argument about such when you're trying to look at such work, not about so much about their wages, right? Uh and sort of the economic contract of work, but to think about how work transforms or in, is imagined to transform the people who do it. So I'm going back really here to Adam Smith, to Marx, you know, and, and sort of the and, and even to people in like Norbert Wiener um, who, who basically take a very Lamarckian kind of um, perspective to work. Right. In other words, what what you do will transform who you are. And so I'm curious to think about, and I'm curious to investigate. Um, what how do people imagine populations as transforming through work? And uh, and through my look, number of my different you know little research projects, I found that actually. Work was used not just as you know kind of economic contract, but it was used to promise transformation of, you know, families, right? Of um, of ecologies, right? That work was used in such a big transformative way, and I guess that was, I mean, and that um, there was something surprising to me, right? And I and, and I'm making that the subject of my next book.
0: I guess I would also think that, you know, like Richard Florida's work on uh, the creative class economy and, and the way that it transformed uh, landscapes would, would probably factor in there as well. Well, so again, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I hope that uh, you'll send me a copy when you're done and we'll have another chance for a conversation. Definitely. Thank you so much. Okay. Renny Hong, thank you again for taking the time to talk today. I was about to say this morning, but it's not morning for you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to discuss this book with you. Thank you. Uh, once again, my guest today has been Ren Hong, the author of Passionate Work, From Endurance to the Good Life, from Duke University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.